What is going on? Welcome to the Land Podcast. This week, we have a great episode with Steve Hansen. Steve is a returning guest here. We recorded with him last summer. And if you haven't called that episode, I encourage you to go do so. There's a lot of great information in that. You got to hear a little bit about Steve's story, which is really unique. He bought his first farm in Iowa and when he was in his 20s. Who he sold that farm to was Bill Winky. That kind of tied everything together. And then since then, he's uh, done a lot of different land transactions, um, has a lot of different perspectives and experience when it comes to land. So basically what I'm saying is there's a lot of good information that he's learned from over the years. And hopefully you guys can take a tidbit or two out of this conversation. If you're tuning into the Land Podcast for the first time ever, the goal here is really simple. We want to help 100 people buy their first farm. So there's three ways to be involved in that list. Number one, if you're in the state of Illinois and you would like a buyer's agent or you'd like some assistance, reach out to me. Number two, if you want to get connected with someone that I would personally do business with, I would happy to do my best. If I don't know anyone in the area you're looking, I'll just let you know. And number three, if you just simply learn something from the podcast that helps you take action, helps you move forward, I want to hear it. That's what puts fuel in this tank to keep cranking out episodes every single Monday. Hope you guys enjoy this episode. Here we go. All right, Steve, thanks for having us having us back in Iowa. Yeah, no problem. Good to see you guys. Yeah, we were out here last August and uh, we talked about your kind of whole progression as a human, really. Right. Yeah, my whole 25 years in Iowa. Yeah. So. And uh, so we talked about that, talked about the first farm you bought, which is a really cool story. So I encourage everyone to go listen to that if they haven't done so already. We also talked on the Exodus podcast about some hunting tactics, which we'll do uh, here today, too. But before we get into all that, just take a chance to introduce yourself here a little bit in case they didn't catch that other ep- those other episodes. Yeah, my name is Steve Hansen. We live here in southern Iowa and um, mostly, you know, kind of specialize in land, real estate and land management. So that's uh, kind of the short story. Yeah. And so you're involved in a lot of things, too. I mean, you're you're you have a lot of irons in the fire. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it is a little bit when you try to explain, you know, our system to someone, it's hard because they don't understand the, you know, partners and different Mm -hmm. people are handling different aspects of it. I've got an outfitting business that I'm still a partner in, but I I don't have a lot of hands-on day-to-day management of that's kind of run by somebody else. And then we do CRP management. That's also got a primary person in place to run that business. I just kind of help on the consulting and keep things going forward with, with that. And then, um, the timber stuff is my own. That's my hobby. That's yes. kind of my own little passion. I could tell you. Yeah, passionate that's about it. my, my passion, but that, you know, I, I realize that that's not always the best use of my time, but I, it's, you know, I always say it's better than ice fishing all winter because that, it definitely pays better than that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that, it was so fun yesterday. We got a chance to, to walk around and look at some, some logs you cut already and go look at some standing timber Yep, and, uh, learned a lot. And it's just really cool. I can tell you're passionate about it and, and really fired up about all the different things. Cause it takes a, I'd say it takes a semi daredevil. To yeah. Want to do that. Yeah. You got to have a higher tolerance for risk to be involved in that. And we'll cut a little bit later today and we'll hopefully show a little bit of that. <laughs> Not too much daredevil, just a little bit of yeah. what we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So something I want to ask is you're really in tune with the real estate market right here in this part of Iowa. And uh, we were talking about the land, land trends going up to August. And then let's say August to now February. What have you seen happen here? Over the last, I guess, five months? I would say when you were here the last time, that was kind of the very peak of what we had for demand. I mean, that was, I saw there was very low inventory and quite a bit of demand. And we saw some sales that, and had some sales of farms we sold 
that were literally off the charts, you know, unheard of prices. And then I would say from October, late October through mid-January, it really kind of slowed down. And I thought at that time that, okay, this is, you know, they've been changing the interest rates and some of that, and this is the new going to be the new normal. But as of about early Feb, late January, early February, the demand picked up like crazy. And while people still, the prices, you know, people were still being as conservative as possible, the limited demand just kind of kept bumping the price back up. And Mm -hmm. we've had some sales that were, you know, still very, very strong. So what do you, why do you, why do you think it picked up there in January, February? Do you have any guesses or? I think that is our historical time that land, you know, that land picks up our peak months for, you know, land sales are always, you know, January, well, January, February through May, but most of those projects are put together during like March. And I think it's when everybody's done hunting, they start looking next year for where they want to be. And it's the perfect time to make a new plan because if you do it, if you make a new plan in August, you're not ready to hunt. If you make a new plan and get a new farm, close on it, March, April, you know, you've got time to get your plots in, get all your stands up, you know, at least run your cameras, get a history, know where you're at. So, um, yeah. And then the other thing is our ag prices, crop prices, commodities have stayed high. And so that's kind of fueled the fire on that side as well. That's almost a separate asset class from the hunting land, but the two do ride the same mirror, mirror each other because, yeah. you know, if you have somebody that sells one that's higher crop, they're going to reinvest that money and they're, they're, they may switch into a hunting farm, but still that brings that capital over. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Do you think, <clears throat> have you seen, because I think hunting farms maybe get uh, pinned for not having as good of appreciation or as return as typical straight, raw, tillable ground, or is that assumption wrong? I would say that that assumption wouldn't tell the whole story. What I notice is it's more like the ag tends to be a more steady bell curve of gains mm-hmm. where the where the hunting land tends to be a little bit more up and down like that. It'll spike faster, but it'll slow down quicker. Whereas the ag has so much capital behind it, yeah. it kind of stays on a steady push ahead, you yeah. know? And it takes it, it's once it gets momentum, the ag, it takes it a lot longer to slow down, you know? Um, where the hunting land, the demand can kind of ebb and flow a little bit yeah. quicker. So, do you think that correlates uh, just with the general economy more yes. so than maybe tillable land? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because I think your buyers, you know, on your, I would say your new buyers um, of the recreational property, there are a lot of times there's somebody who is close to or nearing retirement. So their buying power is probably attached to like the stock market. Yeah. They're, if they feel strong, their portfolio is doing well in other things, they're going to be a more bullish buyer. Mm-hmm. If they you know, if, if that side of the economy retracts, I, they, they're quicker to retract and slow down what they're doing, you know. What I find interesting, though, I just read an article this morning, actually, that uh, the average 401k in the U.S. went was down 20% last year. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. But then you, the land market was still pretty strong, but I think very it's strong. still pent up demand or pent up inventory. Yeah, yeah. It's low demand is what's, is what's doing that. Um, yeah, I've been a little surprised. We kind of spoke of this yesterday. I've seen this... In that in that period of December through January, I saw the first few appraisals that reflected possibly a slowdown. You know, and and a lot of most everyone involved, I would say a high percentage of land buyers are borrowing money, even mm-hmm. if they have the resources to do it. Otherwise, a high percentage still borrow money. So we're seeing we're seeing that 
you know, as part of the part of the equation now too. Mm-hmm. So what do you, with, with all that being said, I mean, if someone's listening right now that has saved up for their down payment and they're waiting to buy their first farm, does your strategy change from any time, anything different from the last time we talked? No, probably not. You know, I would just be, you know, be a little bit careful on the buy side, buy what you can afford. You know, this wouldn't be a time to really double down and stick your neck out. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't think so. Like I would still buy a property, you know, if it, because I have so many buyers that never bought because of the market. You know what I mean? I've never seen that strategy work yeah. efficiently. You know, I think I would be careful, get in where you can and then, you know, just manage it and, and keep going forward. But I, I definitely wouldn't, I, everybody's waiting for a crash, like a, you know, fire sale crash, which I don't think that's coming. You know, there's just two people have too many different income streams. Everything's kind of working that way. And then with the ag nowadays, you know, we're, we're anxiously awaiting Monday because Monday is the beginning of our new general signup and our CRP rental rates are going to reflect the new cash, the new cash rents. So they could be, that could be a, game changer for some of this, some that's, of these farms. That's you know? a good piece of advice right now. If someone's. Yes. Yeah. Well, up. yeah, there's two things going on. Always this time of year, we get new legislation introduced and there's always the off chance in Iowa that they change something in regard to non-resident landowners, um, which that would be a game changer on our land prices. And then with this new CRP sign up, that's going to, that's going to change the CRP, which is sort of the floor, in my opinion, of the, of the, rental rates because you know if you can get 200 yeah yeah, if you can get to the government is inefficient in the fact of how they allocate that money whereas if you had a five acre farm in the middle or five acre field in the middle of your farm no farmer is going to come rent that for 240 bucks an acre Mm -hmm. you know but if that soil type is the same as other productive soils you're going to get that rental rate from the government so that kind of keeps it keeps it going so yeah (laughs) excuse me that's a that's definitely, I mean, that's the CRP that I just enrolled is 10 acres in the back part of the farm. Right. That no one can get equipment in. Right. So. You couldn't get there with yeah. a helicopter. <laughs> <Pretty> so, <much. laughs> yeah. Maybe a, a horse and buggy. Player. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that's a great thing. And do you have any other, while we're talking about CRP, is there any other uh, good advice for people that just need to know or maybe don't know when it comes to CRP? Because it is it is confusing. Obviously, we have Richard here today. He works for the NRCS and we've been grilling him with questions. Yes. But, um, anything, anything else that people just kind of need to know on the surface level or... Well, one thing is, you know, one of the really basic things that are needed for CRP, for a new CRP signup, is you have to have crop history. And the crop, it, people always hear four out of six years. Well, it's not quite that simple. It's four out of six years. And okay. I think the ones right now we're using 2012 through 2017. Yeah. So it had to have been farmed four out of those six years. If it was in CRP during that time, that counts as crop history. Um, but that's the basic thing. So a lot of people said, oh, my farm's been farmed four years. Well, it may not have been the right four years. Yeah. So that's that's like before you get too excited about it, you know, go into your FSA office, tell them what you're thinking on your map, and then, you have know. Both the crop yeah, history. because there's no sense getting all excited about it and then finding out you don't have that option. Yeah, so. that's that's really important. So with this, is how do those years change? And Richard, if, <laughs> if you want to. Sure. But like, so it's 2000. Historically. Historically, the way it works is as that as we move into a new farm bill, which we we will in basically October first of this year, they'll move the years up seven years. Mm-hmm. That would be the very simple way to do it. They've done that in it in at least the past two farm bills. I'm assuming they're going to do it again, but that's an assumption, and they could change anything at all. So, 
Um, but that would be the, you know, that would be the biggest thing. So, and it's good that they do that because as land has been brought from pasture into production, it, you know, it takes a while to get eligible for crop history. So that should help them achieve the national goals of CRP. They're trying to get more CRP. I think they're still 2 million acres short of what, of what the cap is. Yeah. So, I mean, they're going to have to, the rental rates are going to have to reflect the, you know, they're wanting to do it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's certainly good advice. I think there's probably a lot of exciting misconceptions on CRP sometimes like that. that yeah. Itself. Like, well, it's been farmed for the last four years. Well, to your point, if it wasn't during this right time frame, it doesn't matter. Yes. And then another thing that, you know, with CRP <laughs> is that plays heavily with someone buying it for a recreational property. A lot of people go in and they said, oh, you know, I get I'm an, I enrolled my farm in CRP. It's in Heli and which is a, a continuous program highly erodible land program, um, different programs al- have different things they allow. Heli has a bonus, so you get some upfront money. So a lot of people gravitate towards that. It does not allow for food plots. Mm. So a lot of people get disappointed when they learn, oh, I thought I could do 10% food plots. And you mm. have to say, no, that unfortunately you can't. If you want to leave food plots, you have to exclude those acres from the sign up. Mm-hmm. So well, I think I'm probably getting this wrong, so I don't I okay. even bring it up. But I think so. What I put in was 10 acres of highly rotable land, and then they have the safe program. Right, safe is a separate continuous practice. Okay, that's a different practice from Heli. That up that yeah, way. that's a different practice from Heli, okay. and that builds in a lot of wildlife. Yeah, benefits. you can still do the food plots on you that. You can do the food plots. Trees some up. of those, some of the safe contracts. Actually, one of the other things you can't, you can do up to in a general CRP. Most of those allow for 10 percent of a field Mm -hmm. to be eligible for food plots up to five acres. So if you have a 50 acre field, you know what I mean? You can do two and a half acres of that, I would guess. Or no, five five acres. Yeah, you could do five acres. If you have a hundred acre field, you can can still do five acres. (laughs) So you can't do like, you know, a mega giant food plot. So that's important to know too. But the other thing is we, with our, the CRP on our own lands and the farms that we manage, we like to use fire to manage it. It's by far the best way to manage natives, keep everything out, um, all the brush down and stuff like that. So we build into our contracts 30, usually 30 foot fire breaks. So the CRP contract will have a 30 foot fire break of clover around the perimeter. And so that that's not counted as a food plot. Mm-hmm. So that is another food source if you're managing for deer and other wildlife that's on the farm you know, that you're getting paid for rental rates, everything like that. And it, it really, we've done that. I've done that about the last three years and I'm really happy with that. That's, that's one of the, the better practices that I would encourage someone to, um, when they're, when they're enrolling and you get to seating plans and stuff, that's something that I would definitely recommend people request because mm-hmm. it's a game changer. Yeah. So. Yeah. It makes those uh, burns a lot easier too. Yeah. It keeps the burns usually away from the edge of the timber, stuff like that. You can, um, you can, you know, it's a great place to run your cameras. You can get around the edge of the farm without staying out of the thicker bedding cover that you've designed. And yeah. So do you have any issues with morning access, like going through there? Let's say, cause they're on the, let's say they're feeding on the clover buffer strip. You know, the, the one way we mitigate that is if it's an area where we want to concentrate feeding, you know what I mean? Like, like ideally we'll have a grain food plot that's in the CRP. That's part of our 10 acre, you know, 10 acre or 10 percent food plot 
and then we'll have the clover around it. If it's in an area where we want to try to keep the deer, we'll actually run a little fertilizer on that, mm -hmm. and then we'll keep it sprayed a little more carefully and mowed for grasses. Now, I don't know, you know, what NRCS is going to say mm -hmm. if they hear that. I don't know what they, I don't actually know what, if that's allowed or not allowed, <laughs> we kind of do it, but um, and then we just kind of keep the other in general clover and don't manage it as to be as lush and thick. But one thing I've learned is, is they don't go to the clover as a destination plot. They nibble on it as they go across and they keep 10, going. 15, 20 seconds. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So it, but it does allow you, you know, with that CRP, you can still mow places for access trails that stay in the thicker cover. So mm -hmm. that's worked out really good for us. Yeah, that's, that's good advice. I'm trying to think here. In terms of, do you have a favorite CRP practice? There's a lot of warm season grasses throughout here. Yeah, I, I, you know, we're always trying to build and improve habitat, bedding cover, stuff like that, thermal cover. So we we do a high percentage of tall warm seasons. Um, I really, for my own stuff, I really do like having pollinator mixed in it. You know, people, it's it's an unusual CRP because it changes so much throughout the summer. Because as different forbs, different mm -hmm. flowers are blooming, you know, there's times that it's like, you know, I'll tell people in our office, I said, hey, if you want to get good CRP pictures, go out there today. The wildflowers look nuts. But then the landowner shows up two weeks later and it looks like a patch of weeds because mm -hmm. the flowers are, you know, so it's one that isn't a consistent you know, the tall warm seasons, once you get them established, they just kind of look like, you know, waves of grain in the wind almost, you know, and they're going to look like that almost year, year round. The pollinator provides a lot of food, just another food source in the CRP, but it's not as con conducive to cover. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a cover plot. It's more of a, almost another food source. Yeah. Really diverse. Yep. Diverse one. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Absolutely. Okay. Now we were talking, we walked a farm yesterday that was an old cattle farm mm -hmm. and then you guys have done a lot of work or a lot of, yep. the Elaine owner had a lot of work done yep. uh, to really transform the farm. Do you think that's a, a good strategy? I know different parts of the country have more opportunities like that than others of, of converting cattle pasture into what I'll call a deer Mecca. Yep. What, what is that, what does that process look like or what does a good potential farm like that look like? You know, those, I do like those because they're generally clean slates. You know, you can do, once you get started with it, you can kind of mold it to, to whatever your goals are. And you don't have like a CRP contract in the middle that isn't right for the, for the property or something like that. It is a longer process. You know what I mean? Because you don't have any crop history. If, if it's one like that farm yesterday where we cleaned it up, cleared off all the brush, old thorn trees and hedge trees, started farming it. Now this, it's been farmed for two years. It's going to be seeded into alfalfa on the steeper ground this year, which will still count as crop history. Mm -hmm. And then some will remain in crops. You know, that, that farm's really, you know, really going to work out the way we wanted it to. It's just a long, they are longer processes, but the, the real advantage to those is historically you can get those bought at the lowest price point. Those farms look the worst, a lot of recreational buyers will look at them in the cattle farm state and, and say, no, this isn't for me. Yeah. You know what I mean? They want, they just can't visualize one or two years away what it could be. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. that, and I would also assume maybe if it's a neglected old cattle farm, the fences probably aren't that great. Yes. So then other cattle ranchers don't want to buy it. Right. It exactly. Yeah. Usually the ones that are the, the lowest price point, you know, they've been sort of abused like that one yesterday. That one was in really bad shape when we bought it um, or when our the guy that we managed for bought it. 
and it it show even showing it today it doesn't it doesn't do it justice how far it's come already yeah. so and that's one thing i'm guilty of i really should you need more before pictures more before pictures more drone pictures because yeah. that really shows like wow you guys really yeah. did this um and it'll just keep getting better and better that's a great neighborhood over there that's just south of the farm that or just north of the farm that i sold to bill winky mm -hmm. so he's in a great neighborhood with some other people over there and once he kind of gets, this will be the first year we'll be done there with the edge feathering project um, here in a, here a week or so. And then those guys, will, the farmers will get that seated down and then there will be no more disturbance in there. Big disturbances. We've been in there for the last two and a half years at some point of each year with big machines doing a lot of work. So mm -hmm. I'm hopeful now that that place settles down and he can, the landowner can really enjoy it for the reasons he bought it. So yeah. Which I think that there's a trade-off to like you're you're buying land cheaper and you're gonna take two years to do the work right. to do it. But in reality, on paper, it definitely makes sense. Yeah. And if you enjoy doing that type of work anyways, it's it's, it's worth a, it too. Yeah, it's a win-win for yeah. sure. Yep. And you know, and that one, you know, kind of that farm there kind of illustrates some of the other things. You know, we focused on access early, put in creek crossings, did yeah. a lot of that kind of stuff, built a few roads. It that we didn't go over there yesterday. We will if we cut some trees there today but the north side of that property when the crop is in it's really challenging to access it so last year we built a road pretty much for the sole purpose it, it may have some advantages for hunting but it really just allows us to get in and out in the summertime work on cameras stuff like that without disturbing the whole farm otherwise you had to drive all those around all those fingers oh, really? with a four-wheeler yeah. to work on cameras and stuff like yeah. that and that's terrible so yeah we we built a road system that runs east to west across the entire north end of the farm so wow. yeah which is pretty cool um that's going to be a game changer for that farm too yeah how fun has it been to over your career to go in and work on these farms and then see them from you know a zero out of ten or a one out of ten to a seven or eight out of ten that's got it's be really fun yeah it's yeah. really fun it's fun to watch them move through that progression and then you know a lot of times if it's one that i have ownership interest in we'll take it as far as we can during our time you know, we'll sell it. And then what, you know, a lot of times we get to help going forward with it yeah. and an opportunity will come up for someone, that guy to buy the piece that we've said, Oh, if we only had that, you know, and then sometimes you really get to see the potential of the yeah. farm. It's pretty cool. Do you believe in the phrase build it and they will come? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah without a doubt. I mean, that's, I've seen it, you know, I'd say dozens plus times, you know, mm -hmm. where you go somewhere and it's like, this doesn't look like much. And then all of a sudden in a year or two, it's people like, oh my gosh, that place is awesome. You know? Really? Yep. Wow. Yep. And that a lot of that has to do with the food, mm -hmm. you know, when build it, I'd almost say plant it and they will come, <laughs> you know, that'd be a better yeah. way, but improving the structure, like some of that stuff we looked at yesterday, that edge feathering, that's going to really help that farm. Um, we've got the food. I think that farm's going to be greatly improved by the alfalfa. Mm. I think that's one component. The landowner this year, uh, he's actually now an Iowa resident and he was hunting late muzzleloader. And when it was cold and snowy, that farm was on fire. You know, you're seeing 20, 25 bucks a night. Yeah. He had some you, standing beans. He's down standing there. beans. Yeah. yeah. But then it turned and we got the weird January, you know, early January warm up yeah. where it got 50 degrees and he went from 20 to 25 bucks a night to nothing. Yeah. Like literally had a night where he didn't see a deer. That's crazy. And it is crazy. But that's the fact that he was just, his food source was just one thing. He yeah. had one food type yep. and that's what we're trying to avoid. And he would have had some better turnip plots on the other side of his farm. We planted them. We cleared them last August. They were all just more grown up pasture and then planted them, but we were in the middle of that drought. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that we had to disturb the ground so much because we had to dig the roots up, we literally 
by the time we were done, we shook all the moisture out of the soil and they just didn't do very well. They got a couple inches tall after we got a late September rain, but then they were gone. You know, yeah. the deer just sawed them off. Yeah. So mowed them down. Yep. Yeah. Anything else on, on cattle pastures? I mean, if someone was good to go buy their first farm and they really want to get their hands dirty, do you think that's probably one of the best opportunities? Yes. Yeah. If, and I wouldn't even, you know, one, one thing that I would look for on a cattle farm, I wouldn't be concerned with how much cover it has, you know, even a few Creek bottoms and stuff like that, that don't look like much. Now you can add, as long as you've got kind of the frame, like a few Creek bottoms and stuff, you can add that cover pretty quickly through switch grass, you know, doing some edge feathering projects like that. You know, I think a lot of times people are looking for probably too much cover. I wouldn't be afraid to take on, you know, a 200 acre farm that had a few Creek bottoms going mm-hmm. through it that maybe connected a few big, ideally connected some bigger blocks of cover mm-hmm. in a neighborhood that you want to be in. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't look at one to have to own all that cover now. Yeah. I think you can create that. So. Well, to your point, the, the last farm we walked where it's like, you could go add quality cover, right? Native cover, right? Or you can go buy the farm that already has a bunch of cover. That's probably honeysuckle. Right. Exactly. Something yep. else that's not what you really want. And then if you're probably a good steward, you need to restart anyways. Yes. Yeah. You're going to, yeah. And that's the thing. Once, once some of that, you know, timber projects have been done, if they're done improperly, you know, the one we walked yesterday was a great example of that. If you go in and cut those trees that we marked yesterday, you cut those now and don't deal with the invasives, the honeysuckle, you know, you'll have a, a, if you manage it properly, you'll have a fight on your hands, you know, for years to come. Whereas if you work hard beforehand spraying, you know, girdling some of the junk trees, cutting down what you want. I looked at it yesterday. I think a lot, a good portion of that can be done with a skid loader. It's fairly open ground in there. Um, you know, if you do, a, I would say a day of work ahead of time will will save five days of work after the fact. I would say it's a five to one ratio of, yeah. of stuff like that. That's so, important. Yeah, that's, that's uh, really one important. One day versus two and a half weekends. Yes. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And it's, you know, it sounds like, oh, we'll go down to the farm and, you know, hack and squirt and deal with invasives. But it's it's hard just to get there in the morning and stay after it, yeah. you know, all day long. And that's why I like a project like that one where, you know, we can put the backpack sprayer on and go around and, and spray the ditches. But then, you know, jump in the skid loader and ride around for a while and deal with some of it. Then go back to doing it. <laughs> yeah. You know, you put eight hours with a backpack sprayer on and you, you about had enough. Yeah, so, that, that makes for a long boring Yes. Day. Yep. And like we talked about too, you know, that, that's a manageable size product, that project, that little ridge, there's 30 acres. Yeah. So, you know, that's something, if it was 300 acres, then, you know, like this one I'll tackle without cost share, just because it'll move faster that way. Mm -hmm. Um, I would like to get some professional foresters opinion on things I can do to increase the chance of, you know, quality white oak regeneration. Um, but, but yeah, that, that one there will be a nice project. Yeah, that, that was a, really cool uh, to go through and, and look at all that, those different things. You're obviously a big proponent of edge feathering. And mm-hmm. one of the questions I have is like, what's the lowest lowest lift, biggest impact habitat projects? And I know that's dependent on the farm and the area. But to me, it seems like edge feathering is probably your answer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Lowest lift meaning Le- for easiest. Ex- yeah, easiest. Yeah. And the other thing is it has almost an instantaneous impact. That's the biggest thing with us. You know, it's like when we do tree plantings or do switchgrass, you know, switchgrass, you're not going to have a good, you're not going to have a great stand normally until year two, possibly even three, you know, a tree planting, it could be 10 years before that starts to look like what you want. But edge feathering, 
it by you could start in the morning and it's what you want by the end of that day yeah. you know if it's done right and that i guess that's the biggest thing and you can do a lot of um you can do a lot of good to the forest because we kind of do them as a um i would say a little with a little bit of a timber stand improvement model so i like on that one we walked yesterday i went ahead and marked out trees to watch for you know crop trees stuff like that and then we cut all the the non-valuable species or the junkier species and then so in the end the landowner is getting instant habitat and we've released some better crop trees yeah so yeah and to your point i could i could picture because i've walked other farms right but the pre-edge feather where it's you can just see forever right and then right. you got down in some of those spots where it's a really strong wall of cover and then you have pockets of yep, little pockets of yeah. open little bedding areas mixed yeah. in with it and and we're we're lucky here another thing that is helpful with that is and it's why everything is a process like that farm went from a lot of locust trees they were cleared off with a dozer and then we they cleared kind of right up to the existing timber which at first you think oh man that looks terrible but what that allowed us to do i mean we were able to by farming it they, that killed the brome the fescue now that we've put that cover on the ground that's going to give a place for hopefully some natives to come back if if you just edge feather into pasture you're not going to get the full experience the full value because you that grass is still going to be there even if you did nothing more than ran around the edge of what you wanted to edge feather in the fall with a sprayer and just did a fall spraying just to try to set back you know those mm-hmm. the the real problem when you deal with cattle farms is the cool season grasses brome fescue there's a bunch of them they've been there forever the seed bank is huge you know you're gonna be you're gonna fight those roots for a long time Mm -hmm. and farming it two or three years in a row will beat that down Mm -hmm. so we uh we did a burn at my house last year and it's old fescue Mm -hmm. grass and uh just the one burn we did not spray Mm -hmm. i already have volunteer switchgrass yeah yeah it's amazing yeah yeah and that's pretty cool because that quite possibly is a true native that's Mm -hmm. native in the seed bank there and in your burns like that, if if we if that's our goal, and we're not going to use chemicals or anything else for whatever reason, um, remember where you're at. <laughs> I think so. Um, you know, if our if we're doing the conversion from pasture, and you can get that fall, if you're not going to do any spraying, and you're going to do the burning, we try to push those burns as absolutely late as possible into the spring. So like right around April, that right before April fifteenth or whatever that cutoff. Day well, is. our here we're May fifteenth. Oh, really? Yeah, our okay. cutoff, our nesting season here is May 15th, which that's a whole other story, but that's too late. There are a lot of birds nesting by then, mm-hmm. but, and that's where you have to use your, you can't use a calendar. You have to watch what's happening because there's a time frame in there where the cool season grasses green up and start to get, you know, four to six inches growth, but the natives are still dormant. If you run a fire through then, you're going to really stunt and set back those cool seasons right at the time that that soil temperature allows those warm seasons to shoot ahead. Mm-hmm. And so that's what you're doing. It's almost like you're spraying because you're you're killing off. They're killing off what that plant stored all winter yeah. in the cool seasons. And so it's stunted for a little while, which gives those natives a chance to grow. So it's just tougher to run a fire because you're dealing with green vegetation. What's it's real the, smoky. What's the magic date for that? Probably. Well, it's not a date. It's not a calendar date. What's the, so like. The window, I would say that is April 15th to May, May 1st. 15th. Yep. Okay. Yep. But that in, in our area, in the Midwest here, in your area, you know how it is. 
it could swing wildly due yeah. to how a you know have a cold late spring or a real early spring. Yeah. I mean, I you know how it is. We've seen people have to mow their lawns in March here. Yeah. And then there's other years the ground's frozen in March. So, yeah, that's and I think that that's hard for some landowners to to deal with because they're they're just wanting to you know, get a calendar, make a plan like you would and check that box. Okay. We'll be there. You know, April 9th is the perfect day. Well, that may or may not work out. So. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's good advice. What about, um, let's see here. I would say you've walked a ton of properties more than a lot of people. What do you see the best properties have in common? Probably, you know, the best properties using their finished product, like huntability, the ones that hunt the best, probably access, you know, those farms that have good access, probably from multiple sides. I'd say that's a, that's a crucial part of it. You know, that, that's going to be a, that's going to be a big, a big part of, you know, being successful because some of those access problems, they, you just can't change them. You know, um, I would say ac- that's a big part of it. Access would be my, nu- if I was looking at one thing, I would probably look at that first. Mm-hmm. So let's say this, let's say it's like a 60, it butts up into a really great neighborhood. Okay. But, and it's priced fair. Okay. But the access is terrible. Do you think you can overcome that by manipulating the farm or is it just up? Yeah. I mean, you, you can, you may have to change, completely change your hunting strategy, mm-hmm. you know, and that's where as a new buyer, you know, every, I would say a big mistake that people make as a new buyer is they want everything. Mm-hmm. And you might say, man, that 60 acre farm, that's going to give me access to hunt a world-class neighborhood but I'm going to have to be disciplined. I can only hunt evenings in gun season and I can only hunt west and north winds or yeah. whatever the situation because allows. Because if you're in that great neighborhood, it's yeah. going to be very easy to yeah. pressure you. Exactly. Farm. And one good, you know, the way I would look at it is one good sit on the right day with the right wind is way better than four or five hunts going in there half, you know, on a wrong wind or spooking part of the farm and stuff like that. And that just takes, hey, I, I'm willing to accept that I can't go down there every Friday, Saturday and Sunday every week, no matter what. But when I do go, I'm hunting world-class deer in a great neighborhood. Yeah. And I would make that distinction ahead of time. Yeah. So I think most people probably aren't disciplined enough and, and I would probably be in that category right. too at times. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I had a, a buyer, I helped a guy, an out-of-state buyer buy a farm. He owned another farm and literally we were shopping for farms for one good South Wind setup. He really? goes, I don't have a good south wind set up on my other farm. He goes, yeah. we got to find one. And That's cool. He, he wanted to be in an awesome neighborhood. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? And he knew what he wanted and we found it and got it for him, you know? Yeah. And, and unfortunately, he's just getting to a point where he did recently sell that farm and the guys he sold it to shot one in the 190s this year. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> they awesome. were residents, so they had more yeah. options for tags than he did. So. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I think that's a really good point just to illustrate of getting laser focused on what your goals are like right. that client. Uh, in particular, knew exactly what he wanted. Yeah, he's how a, he was going to hunt it. Yep, he's a very experienced landowner. He's owned farms and owns farms currently in Illinois. Has owned farms in Kansas. Has owned a couple different Iowa farms. He knew exactly what what he was looking for when he did that. And it was pretty fun to get him to find it for him. So. Yeah, that that is definitely really cool. Um, any so you you mentioned that you would say uh, the best farms have good access, and then the yep. biggest mistake is overlooking access. Yes. Okay. Yep. Any other mistakes that you see that you've seen over the years where you really feel like you're putting on your coach's hat and saying like, listen, we really need to look at this. Yeah. And it, it, it kind of goes back to the access part of it, but what a lot of people do once they get their first farm, they're so excited about certain projects. They overlook the bigger ones like, 
like, okay, we can't get to the, you know, the back food plot. So they're risking getting their little tractor stuck in the Creek crossing every time, instead of using this year's budget to improve the in- infrastructure, yeah. you know, and I would say that's first, cause once you get the infrastructure in place, everything else gets easier, mm-hmm. you know, and I'd, that's, that's a big part of it, a big part of it too. Um, and then it really depends, you know, with what people are looking for. If, if your primarily goal, if you think this is more of an investment, then you have to shop differently than if, Hey, I'm about to retire. I'm looking for my Iowa dream farm. You know, you really better narrow down your goals and really think them through. I would, I would say that's the number one thing I could tell a new buyer. Yeah. I think that's great advice. Cause I think some people income's really important. Right. And some people it's just absolute best deer parcel period. Right. And they could have $0 of income. Right. Right. And there's buyers for both. And that's yeah. the right choice for, for each, each buyer, yeah. as long as they know what they're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. So you've seen a lot of trend. This, what's fascinating to me is there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, parcels changing hands down this entire area Yep. Uh, compared to where I'm at. And so you, you bought your first farm, which we have right. this full story. Yep. And then how big was that one? Was it 192 or 180? Which one? Your the first, first, the one. first, first farm was 200 acres. Okay. Yep. And then there was, and then a few years later, we bought the the other piece next to it, which was two fifty seven, um, one hundred and eighty seven acres. That was in the Winky Block. A little piece was away from it. From the we bought it as one deal, but that was that was that that was okay. that first farm. And so you sold it to Winky, and then Winky had that. When did, what year did you sell that? Bill would have sold that. I'm gonna say nineteen, okay. nineteen and two thousand. So, no, so you, when did you sell it? To him? I sold it to him in two thousand seven. Okay, and you had it for how long? I had it for ten years. Yeah. So yep. then, and then he had it for twelve years. Yeah, roughly. Yeah. Yep. And then so it's now sold again. Correct. Do you see that kind of a uh, sequence of events often in this area to where it's like held for? 10, 15 years, and then yeah, it ten, breaks the seal, and then boom, boom, boom. Yeah, boom. 10 to 15 years is a long hold for most most guys in our area. And um, there's a ton of different reasons why farms sell and stuff. And I would say the 10 years, the 10 year hold is is long. I think a, a non traditional landowner, which is what they kind of refer to as recreation landowners mm-hmm. here, I think their average in Iowa is like five years. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll hold a property if you averaged them all out. And, you know, this guy that bought bills, I don't know him personally at all, um, but he, you know, he only owned it two years, maybe by the time they closed on it. Yeah. I would say two years at the most, yeah. you know, um, which was, which was interesting as well. So, so what, what's most fascinating to me too, is people talk about trying to time the market. And then, so they sold that in 2019, right before a big uh, run up. And the 2019 landowner right. from t- to 2022 or 2023 made more gains than yes. what? Yeah, you couldn't have hit years. it. You couldn't have hit it better. That new owner could not have hit it better in his purchase from Bill if he had a crystal ball. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. If he knew the yeah. you know story was ahead of him, you still couldn't have done any better. Yeah. Um. You know he he made a similar gain to Bill as far as increase in dollars per acre mm-hmm. in 15% of the time. Yeah. You know, so the time value of money that guy kind of leaves there the undistributed heavyweight champion of that one. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, he, he, I don't know him at all, but I, you know, a little bit of the story. I don't think, I think he did truly get lucky. I don't think it was his, his intention to want to sell that. Yeah. So, but I think that just illustrates of how unpredictable. Absolutely. It really is. Like we're talking, you know, I'm asking you what you think is going to happen. I'm sharing my opinion and we don't know. Yeah. Uh, right. But regardless, I think to your point of finding something that you can, you can bite off and afford and enjoy. Yep. 
do that, get into it and just ride the wave. Right. And the other thing is too, is I don't think like you can, if you buy a farm and improve it, you can move its place in the market. You know, you can take a low end farm and make it a high end farm, but when you go to sell it, it's still going to sell in that market. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't set your own market just because it's the perfect farm. You'd think you could. And every once in a while, someone can, if they're wedged between a couple guys that have to have it, you'll see kind of a one-off sale that goes above the market. But I've seen, you know, great farms sell at what I consider today at a lower price just because that was the market then. And then I've seen starter cattle farms sell for 5,500 an acre because at that time there was nothing else on the market and there was two or three buyers fighting over it. So the market, understanding that the the market is a true thing and it's a true force Mm -hmm. is hard for a lot of people, especially sellers, because what typically happens, and you do this real estate professionally as well, but people, they hear about high sales. So then they think about it for a while. Yes. Then they see the market start to contract a little bit. So then they become what I call a FOMO seller. Yeah. So now they run to you, but they still have that price of the peak in their mind. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, but because real estate's an inefficient market, sometimes they still get it. Sometimes they don't, you know, but, but it is interesting. This kind of the psychology of sales. Yeah, absolutely. Or they hear of a murmur of one potential sale and then you go look it up on, you know, the land sales bulletin. Right. 20% Twenty percent right. less than right. The it's a list amount. price. Yeah, yeah, they're 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 stating list prices, not sale prices. Yeah, but no, I think that's a, some really good information. Is there anything else that you would want to share that that we didn't cover? I mean, one one other question I had is this: you're very passionate about this. Yeah, and, absolutely. And I appreciate you taking the time to. No, it's fun to, hanging out with share, you guys to share all this information. But if you had to boil it down, what excites you most about recreational land? I'll leave you with that. Um. Yeah. Probably just to you know be able to get, start a project and truly see it improved. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's not just the timber side. It's not just the CRP or the habitat side. It's the whole thing, you know, to see that. Just, of how, it, like a true ecosystem. Yeah, how to see how together. the ecosystem and to see something start, you know, something start from a low quality farm that people are like, why would you buy that to after three or four years? It's, you've kind of created either a neighborhood or created a highly desirable property, you know, to see that it would be no different than, you know, buying a, a old farmhouse that's dilapidated, totally gutting it and redoing it. And now every neighbor that drives by is impressed oh, wow, with it. Yeah. You know, that's, that's kind of what, what we feel we're, we're doing on the recreational side of stuff. Yeah, no, so, that's really cool. Where can people uh, hunt you down or, or follow? Probably on Instagram's the best. And it's just Steve Hansen the third, just that's, that's all I go by. <laughs> yeah. So, yep. Um, I've kind of, that's the one I post on. It'll show up on Facebook too, but, and I sometimes respond, I don't, I'm not super good about I don't check my social media and respond like every day, like yeah. some people do, but um, eventually I'll find you if you reach out. So, <laughs> no, I appreciate it, Steve. Uh, once again, appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. Um, I have learned a lot and I've had really had a fun time. And yeah, we got more stuff going on here today. Yeah. So. We got other projects coming up. So go check some stuff out. Yeah. So there you guys have it. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. If you, if you did, could you leave a written review? It would really help me out. And the next week, we have a great episode with Greg Glessinger. And he talks about some things that he's learned over the years. A fantastic conversation that I hope you guys will tune in for next Monday. Hope you guys have a great week. See you.